Welcome to Dice Talk, the show where we talk all things Dungeons and Dragons to come up with some helpful hints and interesting ideas that you can bring back to the gaming table. I'm your host, Jeremy Fair, and this is episode four, Building Compelling Campaigns. We have a lot to talk about on tonight's episode, so let's go ahead and get started on Dice Talk. Hi, and welcome to Dice Talk. Tonight we have an exciting episode planned for you. We are talking about building compelling campaigns and how to make them something that is exciting and interesting for not just you, but for your players as well. To help me do that, we have Alex Hart. Alex, why don't you just take a moment, introduce yourself, you know, tell us a little bit about you, tell us your experience with you know, D&D and just RPG games in general. Sure. Hey, Jeremy. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, um, my name is Alex Hart. I uh, let's see. I ran a D and D campaign for three years. We did it, and okay. we start off at uh, level one and got all the way to level twenty. And we do with two sections of characters. I DM'd about half of that, and um, towards the end, actually, we united those two sets of characters. And for the last three or four levels, I ran the whole thing to tie and tie it off into one pretty mm-hmm. little ending. Um, I used to have a podcast, uh, The Bracket. Unfortunately, it's no longer on iTunes. I'm working on Street Dragons. Watch out for that. That's going to happen. Uh, I don't have a website yet, but when I do, I'll be sure to give it to you. What's Street Dragons about? <laughs> so Street Dragons, the 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 elevator pitch for Street Dragons is, you know how, let's say Rick and Morty is like a play on Doc and Marty from Back to the Future? Right, yeah. But it's in the you know modern internet era. And then you've got like Archer. Archer's a play on the James Bond 007 films and stuff, but brought into like today's times. We're doing that, but for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, we're taking four brothers who are awesome and radical and extreme, and everything they do is the most hardcore, to the max, 110%, and we're adding that kind of funny, rough-around-the-edges humor that is of today. And uh, we got that working. We, it's going to be big. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that sounds really badass. I mean, you just mentioned, like, three of my favorite, like, <laughs> things ever, so... Yeah, this is the demographic. Like, these are, these are my people. If you ever have watched, uh, you know... Street Sharks, if you watch Biker Mice from Mars, or uh, yeah, obviously Teenage Mutant Turtles, this is today's version of that. It's it's hilarious, it's over the top, everything they do is just, like, get your dick hard, and it's the fun, most extreme explosion rad shit in the world. Right. Yes, I'm very excited about it. Awesome. Well, yeah, everybody should definitely keep an eye and an ear out for Street Dragons, because it's going to be great. Thanks, man. I'm sure it will. Um, yeah, so I, I played D&D for, for three years, and then we, we took a hiatus for a while. Life happened. You know, people get married and move yeah, on yeah. and stuff. And we recently came back to it, and we just started a new campaign. I've only run three characters myself as far as, like, players. Okay. Um, it's the uh, curse of the DM. Yeah, it you really is. the DM for eternity until Breaks you Breaks my heart. Yeah, so, like, yeah, I talked about how I got to wrap up the end of the story. We did 20 levels, and the last, like, four levels, I was, me and another guy were co-DMing, and we were trying to tie it off with a bow and get this really climactic ending. That's awesome. That's fun. But all of my characters, anything, any growth that they got at those last four levels was kind of shoehorned in a way mm-hmm. where... I'm telling my guy, here's what happens to you. And I do miss that. Like, that is one of the problems with being a DM is that you are stepping back and you don't get to be the player. We actually had a good uh, strategy, which was for the the first 16 levels, while I'd be running one campaign, hypothetically, say you're one of my players, we've Mm -hmm. got, you know, three other people, 
you would be writing a campaign for the other set of characters. And then once I finished my arc, then we'd switch over. You would DM, and then I would be a player. And we'd oh, do that back cool. and forth. Would it be in the same story, or is it separate? Like, running two campaigns at once, or are these different parts of the same campaign? So, it's... Two campaigns at once. They're all happening simultaneously as far as time's concerned. Mm-hmm. However, they're just kind of geographically located in different places until we had a couple times where they would bump into each other and overlap, and you would get the option of either do they do you have both your characters on screen? Do you only have one of them on screen? And then you, or maybe we'd say pick one of the two that you want to play as, and you can do it for this arc, depending on the challenge rating of what we were trying to throw at you, and we'd adjust accordingly. But at the end, we said, hey, you got everybody. This is war. This is big. This is huge. You have both of your characters. I have both my characters. We're all, we had, you know, 12 characters running around on the map. Well, that's probably a little high. It was probably 10, mm-hmm. um, depending on the week. But uh, we then got, because it got to the, be the, the, the size where, like, there's cities fighting with us. And we needed every re- resource we could possibly have to take out this final boss that right. we put together. Um, but, yeah, we ran uh, simultaneously. It was a lot of fun. I think that's the way to do it. Um, it does require you to actually write all of your own stories, though. You can't do, like, boxed campaigns for of that course, sort of thing. Right. Yeah, that's that's actually really cool. I mean, I've been playing D&D for quite a while, but I've never gotten a level 20 character. I think I don't think I've ever gotten past level 15, and I have never, I've never played in a game that high of level, and I've never DM'd a game that high of a level. So I'm actually really glad to have you on the show because you can kind of provide this perspective that not only our listeners haven't kind of heard before, at least coming from the show, but I haven't heard before. So I'm excited to see what you have to bring to the table and bring to the podcast. High level games are a different story, man. You are movers and shakers. Like you, when you, you could raise a city by yourself most of the time. Like if you, I, there's certain areas of a town where you could just take a nap and no one could do anything about it. Like they could literally have to do twenties. And if they do a 20 to hit you, they have to get past your crazy DR and all these other things and all the spells you have like planned since, 10 levels ago that revive you if something terrible Mm -hmm. happens like you are a problem you know like it's it's like a bear walking into my house like what am i gonna do about it he can just live his (laughs) life uh but uh yeah it's it's a different story and uh, yeah i'm I'm happy to talk to that it it was a lot of fun to do um and it's actually weird for me now because we just started this new campaign going back to level one and being like right why is why did i roll so low what i can't hurt anybody (laughs) like running away from stuff is not something i'm accustomed to anymore but it's a lot more fun that way. Um, you're not going to play a game where you're always guaranteed to succeed. Otherwise, mm. what's the point of playing the game? You don't beat Final Fantasy 100% and then just log back onto your account to see to walk around and revel in how awesome you are. You want the next challenge. You want an update. You want something new. So yeah, you you want some. You want the chance to fail. That's what makes the game exciting, and it's no different with D and D. Absolutely. That's why, I mean, I've always complained about Superman as a character. Superman doesn't have real struggle. Superman, most of the problems that are presented to him, he could fly straight through it. Like, oh, Godzilla shows up. He just keeps flying and happens to fly through his heart and he's dead. Like, he doesn't have to have this moral quandary. He doesn't struggle on anything. He literally could tear apart the planet if he got mad about his taxes or something. You know, Spider-Man's interesting because Spider-Man fails. And when he walks into a situation, he doesn't know if he's going to float to the top. He has to, like, pick himself up and find a way to rise to the occasion and that's more compelling it's more interesting to watch a guy have something hang in the balance the opportunity of loss is is there and palpable for him at all times and it just doesn't happen with superman so like high level campaigns are different they feel big and political there's a there's a whole world that you're important you know it's like you know if you're Putin, or if you're Trump god forbid um if you're some heavy heavy character in our world it's it doesn't matter like if the local bartender's mean to you but it matters if a city wants to start some shit. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, these low level campaigns feel uh, more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, the high level campaigns feel like oh man, I might knock over the whole table. You know, like everything might fall apart if I don't handle this right. Right. Well, a lot of people who play D anD D a lot, you know, they start at level one and they'll do campaigns like that. But you get to the point where you know it's level three is when you get your subclass. That's when you start getting these extra abilities. That's mm-hmm. when you really start fleshing out the character you've chosen. You can be a wizard, but you're not really a wizard until about level three. No. You're kind of a guy with some magic tricks. Yeah. So I you're can Chris see, Angel. Yeah, yeah. I can see doing a high-level campaign. Not only are you accustomed to it because you've been playing so long by the time you're at that level, but because your stats are so high and combat at that point probably becomes less exciting, you can probably do the role-play aspect a lot more because you know you're, you know you're going to probably win the combat unless the DM throws something supremely challenging at you. So you can, instead of putting so much effort into that side of playing D&D, you can put more effort into playing your character, help building the story, help build this world. Well, and that's something I want to be transparent with up front is that, so I DM'd a lot. I DM'd for for years, but my strong suit has always been story crafting. I like a well-developed world. I like giving your characters something to morally fight against where they can grow and change. I think that the DM's job in general, and at some point I'll probably get into this deeper, but is to give you a stiff challenge and then lose gracefully. And that doesn't have to be just a fight. That can be like, hey, you, you have this belief structure for your character. I'm going to push against that and make you defend your argument as to why you feel that way and then allow you the opportunity to win or the opportunity to lose depending on how you want to play that out okay it's um i think that's what high level campaigns you get more of that because your character has a weight on their back that is bigger than you can do when you're level two when you're level two like the worst you can do is probably burn down an inn or something like that right. oh no boohoo you know now you can level a town yeah exactly like planar problems become your problem at level 20 like big stuff happens that um that it's just your character has to take the time to reflect on their actions more because their actions have greater repercussions yeah so Playing in a high-level campaign sounds awesome. DMing a high-level campaign sounds extremely intimidating. When I run games, I'm I'm pretty heavy on the map. I'm pretty heavy on trying to. Ha- I don't want to railroad my players, but I have, I definitely have a bullet point list of what I would like them to accomplish, or at least attempt to accomplish, and kind of where I want them to go overall to progress the plot. So when you have a level 18 wizard that can use Dimension Door. And literally just travel to any plane of existence, that's intimidating to me. Yeah, well, so the pros and cons of that is that at low levels, your team isn't really united yet. They're not galvanized because they're all new to each other. And they're figuring out the ins and outs of our personalities. And we had a we had a character boot at one point where a guy just got, he, he had a moral obligation. He hated one certain type of person. And we as a group decided we weren't going to fight this thing. And he was like, no, we're going to fight him. We're going to, we're doing this. And he started a fight that was really dangerous and almost got people killed. And then afterwards it was like, hey man, if we go on a vote you and we say no, you have to be cool with that. Now this is a low level campaign. We were galvanizing at that time trying to figure out who fits in and who doesn't and he had to bounce because he couldn't get past that which is it was a it was a cool moment as far as players because you know we did what the characters would do and they they had to figure that out and he left he left right would do versus could do exactly now low level campaigns have that moment where you sometimes have to bottleneck them more to make them a team Mm -hmm. with high level campaigns everybody has the ability to kind of fuck off and do whatever they want we could like you said dimension door just be somewhere else but 
we at that point are already united. We already have something that is a driving factor. We've got momentum because of past stories and things that have happened. You leave these hooks, these things that you can draw on later. It's like, okay, cool, you finished this arc, but remember that guy two arcs ago that was an asshole? He's still out there. What are we doing about him? So you don't really have to worry about them leaving too much because they're already moving. They already have their own right. path. Um, you're just kind of like carving those you know roadblocks in front of them as they go. And I can also see that having high-level characters would kind of help to remove the metagaming aspect. Not so much that they're no longer going to metagame, but their characters at that point have this in-game knowledge to where it's no longer metagaming. Knowing exactly how a goblin works or knowing exactly yeah. <laughs> how this bugbear works isn't metagaming anymore because you've probably fought 30 of them. And your character does know how they work. Yeah, there's knowledge over time sort of thing. Like, yeah, okay, that's a that's a Mind Flayer. I've heard of them. Yeah, you have. You're, you're level 17. You've heard of Mind Flayers because you fought some of their minions or you did whatever. You don't have to guess. You go into Underdark, you go, okay, I, I pretty much got bad guys down. Right. You know? I mean, I'll give them a little bit of leeway. If if you're a dwarf, I'll and they say, well, I think a dwarf would know about this certain character or you know, a dwarf might know about the boule because they're used to mining and digging and running into that monster is a common scenario. I'll give that to them, even if they haven't fought it, because they can defend it in character and it makes sense. Well, and make them roll knowledge checks if you're unsure. Yeah, you know. of ah, okay. But you if they're like, might. yeah, I'm, I'm level two and I know exactly how to defeat this dragon and I know where his weak spot is, That's <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a lot of times when I build campaigns, I'll start off with, I mean, I've definitely made my own homebrew, like, 100% homebrew campaigns before. But a lot of times, I'll start off with the Wizards of the Coast written module that's been published, and I'll adapt it. I'll use the map here or there. I'll use some NPCs. I'll use some plot hooks. But I generally add a lot more. So I definitely change some things, but a lot of it is I add things. And hmm. it ends up becoming this much more epic campaign. I mean, we're playing Horde of the Dragon Queen right now, which is uh, in the Tyranny of Dragons playset for D&D. And we've been playing for 38 weeks, and they're almost done with the Horde of the Dragon Queen. Good they still have another book called The Rise of Tiamat to get to. I've listened to some podcasts in the past where they play through that. It's like six, seven episodes. Yeah. They've been playing for 38 weeks. Good God. And that's you adding a lot of extra meat to right. the bones of that story. For sure. I mean, we I, I added Waterdeep to it, which is an enormous city. That's like hardly in there at all. Yeah. And they spent eight weeks in there fucking around shopping i mean they did some side quests and things i made like a thieves guild and a lot of a mafia and some fun stuff like that but that definitely is not in the horde of the dragon queen campaign so if you're trying to rush through it maybe i'm not the dm for you but if you're just trying to have fun you don't know where you're going and you're not in a hurry to get anywhere I might be the right guy. That's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely different DM styles. There's the guy who tries to put you on rails and make you go down his story. And then there's the guy who says, oh, I have a rough idea what's supposed to happen and then lets you kind of run around. It sounds like you're somewhere in the middle of like, I have an idea what the story's supposed to be, but hey, go ham. You know, if you want to walk down that alleyway, I'll, I'll give you an NPC to talk to. He'll, he'll bump into you. Um, I have a tendency to write epics. I like mm -hmm. to leave these little breadcrumbs. I like to have you walk past something and it looks kind of weird but you're not really sure what it was but there's no time for that and you keep moving and then later on like three levels later, oh my gosh that was super important. I should have done something at that, that time. I like building these huge rising arcs and, and I also really really want your character to change and grow. I'm not here to play this game for the fights. I, In fact that's one reason why we co-DM'd so much was that fight mechanics I'm good with, I'm not great with, my book knowledge is fine it's not over the top mm -hmm. but uh i will go hey you're what's your backstory let me play with that let me do something that's make your character kind of be unsure about where he feels and it has to change or maybe 
maybe doesn't change, but he gets more steadfast into what he already had. That's the kind of stuff I like to throw at players. I just, I feel like that's a better story. If I watched a movie, if it's an action movie, that's fun. It's not interesting. Um, okay. The guy shows up, he kicks down the door, he kicks everybody ass, doesn't really learn a lesson, he's not better from it at the end right. of it. That's fun, there's a time and a place for that, and you can have campaigns in in there that are like that, but I like watching your character become something different, to change and evolve. You know, I think everybody puts a little bit of themselves in a D&D character, mm-hmm. and I think there's something something to be said for kind of challenging your own morals on stuff and, and making you have to confront these things. And you don't get to do that every day in life, but you can do that in D&D. So if you've invested, if lots of people for the first character will be like, that's me in D&D. Right. So many people well, do that. are just trying to break free from their shell. Yeah, I mean, and this is your really opportunity. They don't know what's expected or, I mean, should there even be expectations? Uh, who knows? I mean, that it is what you want to get out of it. My, I remember one of my first characters, uh, Michael, was his name, Michael Freeman. Nobody's going to care about this but me. Anyways, Michael Freeman, he had a big problem with the gods. There was a religious thing, and I personally made that character as a way to kind of wrap my head around my beliefs of of the god out there, whatever is you know running real mm-hmm. life. Um, and by the end of the campaign... I felt that I had a better understanding of where I felt and uh, who I was when it came to that question. Because before I had a lot of of anger, a lot of frustration towards it, and the character got me to work past that. And I think that that's one of the things that's great about D&D is... You know, a lot of people who play D&D are, are a little socially inept, and this is a way to kind of take the complicated universe that is the real world and, like, put zeros and ones on it and get it more confined and easier to swallow and then on top of that you have somebody as a good dm is trying to challenge those things make you process that stuff i think it makes you a better person i i really think it can yeah and i mean for a lot of people that you know might be might deal with social anxiety or simply just aren't afforded the chance to get into many social situations some people look at dnd as like what do you mean you can't come to my party this thursday you got to go play a board game with your friends. Well, one, they don't really understand what D&D is about, but, I mean, D&D is very social. I feel like oh, when yeah. you're playing D&D, you are, not only are you expressing yourself in a way you might be too shy to in a normal situation, but you're hanging out with people, you're having a good time, and you are you are getting more and more into your character the more you play them. You are expressing yourself, you are becoming this character and in a way, it's one of the most social things I've ever done in my life. Oh, everybody knows that friend who's like kind of shy, kind of bashful, and then play D&D. And when they play, they're like a goblin king, and they're doing the fun voice. And, and you're like, I would never expect that to come out of you. You're not that big personality. But this is their opportunity to do that, to stretch their legs on something that they're afraid to do in real life. I mean, this obviously we're kind of like putting everybody in a bubble here that says this. But it doesn't apply to everyone. But there's definitely an aspect of people that are, this is the way that they get to emote and you know that they don't feel comfortable doing in day-to-day life for sure i feel like so many people just don't understand what D is there are people who you think don't typically fit into that that niche of the kind of person that would play D. i've convinced people to play it and they're like this is awesome after two or three games they're like this is not what i thought D was yeah, good D&D should be applicable to anybody. Right. Bad D&D is the, the standard archetype that everybody thinks of. Like, oh my gosh, I love Fireball and people sitting in there wearing hats and stuff. And all that stuff's fun. You can do that if that's the experience that you want. But good D&D is just like saying uh, only nerds play video games. It's like, no, no, it's like the biggest industry ever. You know, like anybody can play that. Or only nerds go to movies. You right. know, come on. Uh, it's, it's so applicable to anything. It's saying it's storytelling. You can, the fights and stuff are great, knowing all the book knowledge and stuff. I'm not backwards and forwards with all the books, but 
I can have a good time at D&D because the story is good. I mean, if right. you like stories, who doesn't like stories? It's like the oldest thing in, you know, human... Like, we we started writing stuff on caves. That's that's how far in, integrated we are into storytelling. D&D is just another aspect of that. And, and a lot of the times, that's what it is, at least. Yeah, D&D is telling a story with other people, but not knowing what's going to happen next. Okay, as far as DMing goes, and we got to, like, circle back at some point as to, like, how to make a good campaign. But that's one of the real challenges of, of DMing and writing a campaign is... It's one of the only... So I was an art... Uh, I'm sorry, art and English major. I'd like to That's draw exactly my... exactly what I was. I hey. was art, and then I switched, and now I'm an English major. <laughs> um, hey, kindred spirits. But I... It's one of the only times where you can write a story, and you don't have control over your main characters. Mm-hmm. Like, you want to map something out and tell a story from A to B to C to D to E. Like, good luck. I hope they go that path. Right, um, and then you're screwed if they don't. Yeah, I mean... It is, I mean, if you're talking about the roles of a DM, uh, you've obviously got, like I said, provide a stiff challenge, lose gracefully, um, know your world, do your homework, have some idea of, like, what's supposed to happen, but plan for them to break that. Plan for them to go off path, because it's mostly your job to adapt. Have a framework for them to work within, and then let's go back to that metaphor of, like, let's say I got five doors in front of you, A, B, C, D, and E, and I want you to go to door B. That's where I've got the rest of the plot. Well, I don't have control over what you pick as a player. You go, all right, we're going to go to D. Well, it is my job. It's this writing test. That's what I love about D&D is that like, you have to like, adapt on the fly, uh-huh. and you have to be able to like, quickly take what's behind door B and move it to door D. Of course. Or you've got to find a way to like, have them circle back around to the door B. Or the other thing you could do, and depending on – it sounds like this is more of your style – Hey, let them pit stop. Let them go to D. Let them play around with that, and then they'll come back to D, uh, B at their own time. Like they'll they'll be fine. Um, it's that's something in D and D that you don't see in a video game. You don't have them give you five options. You go down a path, and then like the video game shifts and moves everything behind that mm-hmm, world yeah. to where it should have been. Like you you're trying to tell a story by like throwing data one chunk at a time at somebody. You don't like if I'm writing a book, I go. He goes from here to here. Why does he do that? He had no other option. I wrote it. He's going to do it. I always get to steer that guy and move those mm-hmm. you know, gears and buttons that make him go a path. And you can't do that in D&D. So our subject today is, of course, building a campaign. And not just a campaign, but a compelling campaign that's going to be fun for everybody involved. You as the DM and your players. So when you're making a campaign, how do you begin writing it? Do you... You normally have like an idea for an ending and then you start developing, you know, the things that happened before that or the steps are going to take to get to that process. Do you start with an NPC or a villain and kind of develop their story and then go, okay, what are their motives? What are they trying to accomplish? And then your, you know, your characters get to start off at a certain point that leads to that. Or what do you do when you're like, I'm going to sit down and write a campaign? Um, I usually look at what gears are already turning. I try and think of like... The world as this moving mechanism. Something's already happening behind. You guys just ended this one story arc. What's something that's happened that might be, you know, still having momentum to it? It's like dominoes. Okay, you tip one over. What's the next thing to tip over? What's the next thing to tip over? I like to do that with, um, like, one of my favorite ones is, like, a city. You go, okay, we just devastated this city or somebody else devastated this city. How are they recovering? What does that mean? Like, oh, we shut down that mining facility. Well, now that means that they've got to find their uh, their uh, money different ways. How are they doing that? Does mm-hmm. it become more of a, like, shady, seedy 
underbelly is a crime, you know, rising because of that, or maybe they're now focusing on lumber instead of mining and things. And you can take that and go, now I built a company that's doing this, has these motivations. There's always something that's already kind of moving along that you can tap yeah, on. Definitely. I like to do that a lot. Um, the biggest thing, I mean, when we go back to sort of challenging characters and making stories that are, which the, the idea is compelling, you want to make it for your players. If your characters, your players have good, well-developed backstories, you can pull strings. You know, oh, your sister went missing when you were much younger. Well, here, here's a, a story wherein you run into this character that has similar features. Oh my gosh, it is your sister. And now you've got to chase down that and you've got to figure this thing out. Find some sort of... Your, your players should be giving you data to tap into at all times. If they're flat and they're not well-developed... Like they're strings to pull? Yeah, that's what I'm looking for out of my players. And that gives me as a DM more ammo to accomplish things. Because otherwise, if you don't have a, if your character doesn't have wants and needs and motivations, then you're kind of forcing the DM to make stuff happen. Like, mm-hmm. like nobody likes being shoehorned. Nobody likes, you know, oh, I had to go down that hallway, or we just all got kidnapped and it was garbage. Uh, we didn't even have an opportunity. So yeah, because that's the only plot hook, or the only like tool I could use to get you guys to go down the path. Because otherwise, you guys were gonna just dick around because you don't actually have any real motivations. If they have their own motivations, just tap into one of those. Lean into that. Um, you know, the the one guy's really greedy. Well, look at that big pile of gold over there. He'll give it to you if you do this one task. Cool, now we have a plot. You know, it's really simple. That's just a hook. But that's step one is is that. As far as, like, crafting the idea goes, um, there's there's a lot. I mean, you, you can always take something that you enjoy personally and then expound on that. Like, you know, you love, I don't know. What's something you love, Jeremy? Zelda is probably Zelda. my favorite thing. Okay, what about Zelda do you love? If you really had to break it down, you had to find like its core elements, there's there's got to be something in Zelda. Let's say it's the um, wearing the masks that's, mm-hmm. that's fun, like in the, um, uh, not Ocarina of Time, what's the other one? In uh, Majora's Mask. Majora's Mask. Okay, cool. You think that's fun that each mask gives you like different skills and different abilities and stuff like that? Awesome. Let's make a story where you get that ability. How would you build off of that? Okay, so he's got different masks. We're going to have to have some guy who crafts these things. Now, why is he making these masks? And you just start start with one thing that you like and then build the questions around that and start answering those questions. And eventually, you got a whole lineage of this. these are the ancient mask makers of, of you know, Obenheim and they blah, 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 blah. Right. And you can start falling into something bigger. And it just started off with, I like Zelda. You know, well, and that's the advantage of writing your own campaign as compared to using a published title. Because when you're using a published title, it's kind of like you have all this homework to do. You have all these things to study, to memorize, yeah. to try to understand. And especially if you're using the pre-made information for the Forgotten Realms, some of your players might know that. So if you mess up, they're like, what? That's not how it works. <laughs> if you're building your own world and your own campaign, there's no homework to do. You came up with it. Yeah. What you say is law. You already know how you feel about this world. You already know what was in your mind when you conceived it. So you you know, you know how these people would react. You know the political issues between these two cities. Whatever it may be, you already know that because it is your world and you're not you're not trying to memorize the script somebody else wrote. You're bringing to the table a script that you wrote. And then you're inviting these players to change the script at any moment. So it makes it a lot easier to adapt and change. 
absolutely. I like being able to bend the world however you needed to. The DM's his word is law. A lot of people. Uh, this is something I ran into because a lot of my players had uh, been playing for years longer than I had, and I was relatively new to it. But I liked writing the story, so I started DMing and things. Um, they would know book knowledge way better than I would, and they would get frustrated. They'd be like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, that's not how he functions this way." And I'd have to go, "Hey, man." You may not know everything that's going on right now. You might think that this guy is a vampire or something, but maybe he just appears to be a vampire. I'm the DM. I know everything. So you're wondering why you got hit in this battle when the guy's way over there. It's like, there's an invisible enemy that you don't know about, and I'm not going to tell you about right now. So you're going to have to figure that out. But don't get butt hurt until you, you know, in the meantime, saying, that's not how it works. He only has so many attacks in a round. Uh, right, you yeah. don't know, man. You don't know. Um, and the DM has the ability to, to, to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And that's actually, that's part of the thing that a DM needs to keep in mind is that if people are bulldozing you say they're like crushing through your game and they're just crushing all your your bad guys that were supposed to be a stiff challenge for them you can change yeah, anything you can change them as at any fighting. time yeah oh, okay they're supposed to be cr4 well you know this one happens to be particularly hardy i don't know why it is or i can make it up on the fly if you have to like if you ask the question but now he's got an extra 30 hit points or now he's got an extra attack you you know everybody's different just because he's in the book this one way I'm running the game. You can buy these console books. You can buy this, like, one-shot thing. That's awesome. That's great. And that is a, a respectable way to play the game, um, especially if you don't have people that really like writing. Um, I like to make my own stuff mm-hmm. because then anything can happen. It can always move. It can always change. And, you, I, you know, like... It's my story. I'm invested, too, as a DM. I care. And and I can make stuff that's pinpoint to your characters. It's really hard to grow and evolve in a Legend of Zelda kind of game, which is a great game and all that stuff, but, like, you don't... Maybe you don't like playing as Link. Maybe you, you're a barbarian. Maybe you're, mm-hmm. a, like, a, a paladin or something like that. That's the kind of person that you relate to. Well, you're not going to take out as much playing Zelda as if you could have picked the way your character was. In D&D, I'm writing for your, your, your paladin. I am writing for your ninja character or your, you know, catfolk or whatever it is. I get to make it to you and it means more. And also, I can go, hey, I know my buddy so-and-so has this kind of stuff that gives him frustration in real life. Let me push on that. Let me try and make him grow and evolve as a person. I know that this will get under his skin. Let's, let's play with those cards. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's great. Well, yeah, if you can go through someone's character and actually reach the player behind the character and actually get an emotional response or, you know, challenge their real-life beliefs in such a way, even if they're pissed, they're going to be more invested in what's going on. They're going to react genuinely. They're not just going to be like, oh, yeah, I guess we'll deal with this. They're going to be like, wait, what the fuck do you mean (laughs) that just happened? Like, they're going to be pissed. They're going to be super involved. To me, getting an emotional response out of someone is, like, you're doing a good job. Yeah, every time I, I go outside, you know, like, one of our players has to smoke a cigarette or something like that, and I'm, I'm like, you seem kind of frustrated, you seem kind of huffy. I get this sentence every so often, it's like, I am having a really good time, my character fucking hates you. And that's a cool moment of, like, having them be that, like... Caught up in the momentum of everything and all this, it's a lot. It's supposed to be challenging. It's, again, Superman sucks. He's not fun. He just does stuff, and it's easy for him. If it's the challenge is good, we want a challenge, and you have to you know push those buttons for your players. Obviously, part of that is moral grace. You want to f- do something that challenges them, that makes them uneasy. Um, if they're a paladin of this or that, but you know they've always cared for their younger sister or something like that. Oh man, family is. Oh yeah. You write family into your backstory. <laughs> 
good luck. Yeah. That means the DM's going to kill him off or something. It is a death sentence for sure. But you go, okay, so you're God. You follow this guy religiously, literally. Um, and he says, I want you to kill this little girl. Or I want you to kill your sister. Or I want you to whatever the thing is that makes you go, I don't know. Yeah, when it comes to moral grays, I think that is a very good way to not only make the game interesting, but to keep the players interested. Because you're, you're playing, let's say you're helping some faction and you're doing all these different things for them. You've spent like a month of real time doing this. And then they do something and you're like, wait a minute, why did he do that? <laughs> and then you realize, are we helping the right people? Yeah. Are these the good guys? Or maybe you, you know all the stakes and you're still just kind of like, okay, do I go in here and save these 1,000 strangers that are innocent? Or do I save my wife? Do I save my child? I either kill, let these 1,000 people die or save my loved one or let my loved one die and save these 1,000 people. Yeah, sometimes the question is, what is the greatest good? You know, you give them a couple options of the good thing to do. And, you know, one guy wanted to save 100 people and the other guy wanted to save the wife. And now your party's talking and they're kind of conflicting and that's fun and it's interesting. And how are we going to get through that? And can I ever forgive him for killing my wife when, you know, he did it for good reasons to save those hundred people? Like, that's interesting. But if you just, and there's a time and a place for this kind of game, but if you just said, here's a tournament, we all fought, we killed stuff. Cool. Awesome. We had fun. I like having big badass, you know, characters that can crush bad guys too. But what did you learn at the end of that tournament? Like, it's I personally am a fan of, like, writing something that's going to make you go, kind of squiggle in your seat and not feel comfortable. Like, you go home and you're like, did I do the right thing? Right. Did I just, is my character evil now? If you can get them to think about the game after the game's over. Yeah. That's a goal. (laughs) Now, one thing I've been struggling with is, so our current campaigns that we're doing right now, our old ones we did two kind of morally gray but leaning towards good teams, okay? Now we're doing a distinctively good campaign and a distinctively bad campaign. Okay. And writing for bad guys is hard because the Legion of Doom, you know, like, they do whatever they want. Joker doesn't play by any rules. He does whatever the hell he's gonna... Goes into his head. He sees a butterfly. Right. He's gonna go chase it down like and kill... Super chaotic evil. Yeah, that's hard to write for. Um, those tend to require you to kind of bottleneck them more. You know, early level bad guys, evil campaigns, you got to just like put them in a box and say, okay, I'm shaking up the box. What do you do? And then, you know, give them one exit and make them go that path. It's very hard with an open world for evil campaigns. Just just as a side note, something I've been thinking about a lot. Especially if they're going to no bounds destroy things. You need to be prepared to not only let them do that, but react. Somebody tell me what Carnage's real motivation is. It's just murder. It's just murder. Right. So you go, there's more murder over there. Like, is that how you get him to do something? There's murder here too. He'll find it. You know, he's carnage. The good characters, the good villains, just if we're talking about villains, are Magneto. He's got a good argument. You can see where Magneto comes from. Magneto, like, he went through the Holocaust. So now that he's a powerful mutant and he's trying to defend mutant rights, he doesn't want that to happen to his people, the mutant race. Right. Um, you get where he's coming from, but he's going too far. That's a good villain. And I think if you're going to run, this is my personal opinion, people can disagree. I don't really like the Carnage type characters. If you're going to run an evil character, I think that character needs... For one, he needs to have a good argument. And two, he needs to have things that he's not even willing to cross his own line for. He Magneto might say, I, I hate, this he, This is not applicable to Magneto, but like, you know, I, I hate humans, but I'm not going to kill little kids. You know, that's a line that he can't do. So you could challenge that character as okay, a DM yeah. by offering, hey, here's a little kid who's against you. You know, that suicide bomber kid with the vest on. I was like, do you try and save him? Or do you, he's an asshole because he's a suicide bomber. What's the answer there? 
Um, that's the kind of stuff that's fun to make your characters sort of chug into. And villains are really hard to write for. Good guys always want to do the right thing. Cat's stuck in a tree. I'm going to go get that cat out of the tree. You can do that anywhere. Right. Bad guys, you have to like appeal to some darker side to them and pull that out. Or you have to make them go, maybe I'm not a bad guy for this one. Eh, it, it's hard. Bad guys are specifically hard. And you also have to have a certain level of congruence between your players so it's not super uncommon to have a whole bunch of neutral good or neutrally aligned players and then have that one lawful good paladin but if you have a whole bunch of neutrally good characters and then the guy that's chaotic evil there's going to be a lot more combativeness and a lot more disagreement in the group of what they should do and then how they react when that one guy says yeah i know that's what you want but guess what and then slits the, the girl's throat or whatever it is yeah then you might get to the point where you're having your players fighting with each other at the table you want to, it's like a balance you need to keep. You want there to, to play in character. You want them to have these quandaries and these disagreements, but you don't want it to be so much that it carries out of the game and into their real life friendship. Well, we go back to, I think this is rule number one. If you only learn one thing from this episode with me on here as a DM, your job is to give them a stiff challenge and lose gracefully. And that goes to the plot too. If you've given them a moral thing that's so heavy that it breaks the character, your player may not be having fun anymore. They made this guy for a reason. This is who they want to be. They're putting themselves in it. There's escapism in D&D a lot of the times. You can say, oh, you slit that guy's throat. Well, now my character's never the same. He's never going to forgive himself, blah, 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 blah. Don't break your characters. Lose gracefully. Push on them. Make them push back. But when they push back, fold your cards. Right. Um, and that's really important to do, I think. I always try to provide a hearty challenge, but it's doable. I want you as the player to be sitting there sweating, literally have sweat dripping down your brow, being like, (laughs) how are we going to get out of this? Or, man, that was so close. But I want you to get out of it. I just want you to get out of it by the skin of your teeth and be like, I cannot fucking believe we made it out of that situation. If whoever did not roll a 20, or if if I didn't have that one last spell slot, we did that one thing, we would have been screwed. I want them to feel that way. I don't want them to die. I don't want to team wipe my players. I want them to be afraid that they're about to get team wiped. I want them to make it out and be like, holy shit, oh, how yeah. are we going to survive next week? Well, I love to, uh, like, every now and then I'll have, like, some big baddie that you're fighting and everything really dangerous, and they're getting by, and the baddie's got X amount of hit points, and they, they've technically killed the guy, okay? Mm-hmm. They've technically killed him, but they don't get to see his hit points. I get to see his hit points. So right. I'll wait until the dramatic moment. I'll wait until they get a little too scared. I'll wait until it's about to... You know, like, oh, no, I, I'm barely hanging on. And then I go, okay, now he's dead. You know, like, you did the one thing. Try and build that drama. The drama will present itself if it goes on long enough because they are going to run out of spells. They are going to go, I got nothing left. And then they they do the one perfect thing and encourage out-of-the-box thinking. So I had I had this barbarian character, Asheron. I loved Asheron. Okay. He had this cool thing where he had a, his main weapon was a scythe. And he had the ability to summon the scythe in his hand. He would just say the name of the scythe and it would zoop, show up That's in his awesome. hand. It's pretty cool. And it could do it across planes. Really badass. So we had this bad guy that uh, my buddy Travis was running the campaign. This guy was talking so much shit. This bad guy had been an asshole the entire time. And early on in the game, he was talking trash, and my guy was not cool with it. And I was like, hey, you won't be laughing so hard when I pull my scythe out of your chest, because this guy was super pompous. Well, the end of the campaign comes up. We're about to fight this guy, and he's still just talking mad shit. Talking mad shit. And I was like, fuck it. Fuck it, man. You and me, we're doing this, okay? Here's the deal. I don't need my other buddies to take you out. You're a piece of shit. I'm going to mess you up. Um, I called him out on it. I said, no, it's just you and me. In fact, I'm not even going to use my weapon. And I like set it down. I was like, I'm just going to punch you in the face and kill you. Well, this is the main boss of this campaign. We, 
him and I walk into uh walked into a circle. He lays down protection from good, protection from evil, like these charms that make it so nobody else can help me. And it's me and him in a fight together. We start fighting each other. I get the first hit. It does next to nothing to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then he hits me one time and drops me down to like thirty percent of my health. I was like, wow. oh shit, I'm in a lot of trouble. And the DM's like, hey man, you bit off more than you can chew. You, and you couldn't escape. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing I could do, and they can't help me either. So I was like, okay, this is a problem. So I grapple him because he's a caster type. I um I, I grapple him to the ground, and then he's on the ground, and he goes, well, I don't actually need to do anything. I I, I could try and stand up, but you are bigger than stronger than me. I'm just going to cast another spell because I'm going to kill you in a second anyway. He does another spell. I had Die Hard, so my guy got to like negative nine. At negative ten, I'm actually dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Die Hard, you get all the way to negative ten, and you can still keep fighting. Um, I asked the DM, I say, um, and this is a 3.5 rule. This is 3.5. Yeah, okay. it's 3.5. I'm old school. Um, I asked the DM, I say, okay, I want to I wanna put my hand in his mouth. What do I need to roll to put my, my hand in his mouth? He's like, that's super weird and sexual kind of. Um, and uh, I was like, it doesn't matter. Just tell me. What do I need to roll? And he, he tells me what I need to roll. I roll the right thing. I, my character shoves his hand in his mouth, and I say the word. I summon my weapon. It appears in my hand inside of his chest, and I pull it out of his that's chest. Awesome. And one hit kill him. And that's a cool moment. Rule of that, cool. Yeah, that's another thing you can, like, yeah, rule of cool. Reward your players. If they do something out of the box, give it to them, man. Like, let them have it. You know, if they want to find this weird way of, th- you know, throw this item and hit it with the other thing and it activates that potion, hell yeah, man. Think outside of the box, give them that. They've earned that. They're having fun doing that. Your plot is important, but their fun is more important. Right, for sure. We've taken some time to discuss kind of the intricacies of how to run a campaign and kind of go into designing a campaign in general. And in just a moment, we're going to go into more detail about how to write a good story for your campaign so that it can have a lasting effect on your players and really be something that they're they're going to enjoy playing. But before we do that, we're just going to take one moment to thank our sponsors. Down in the depths of the mountain, we dwarves spend our time forging powerful weapons, mining precious gems and metals, and feasting like kings. But after a day of digging for the next Arkenstone, this dwarf likes to come home to a package full of loot. Dungeon Crate is a monthly subscription box service forged specifically for RPG and tabletop gamers. Miniatures, dice, tokens, coins, maps, modules, terrain pieces, handcrafted items, RPG jewelry, and more are yours for only a few gold per month. You even get a digital crate along with a physical one as an added bonus. So are you brave enough to reward yourself with a dungeon crate? By Morden's beard, I hope so. Dungeoncrate.com. Let the adventure begin. Once again, that is Dungeon Crate. And you can go to DungeonCrate.com to use the coupon code DICETALK for $5 off of your order. Before we continue, I'm going to just take a moment to read out one of our 5-star reviews. This 5-star iTunes review was submitted by Boots Oyer, and it is entitled, Great Content! Really great podcast. It is nice to hear out different situations and playstyles to be better equipped at the table. I like the DM versus player parallels. Nice to hear both sides. Thanks, Boots Oyer. We really appreciate that, as we do all of our reviews. If you would like to get a shout-out the way that Boot Sawyer did, then go ahead and leave us a 5-star review so we can read it out on the podcast. 
Reviews really help to let us know how you feel about the podcast, and they help to get us to the top of the charts so that we can reach as many listeners as possible. But with that, I say let's just move on, because now it is time for the rest of the show. go ahead and get back to the discussion. So when it comes to designing a campaign, you can plan and make these maps and come up with these characters, but none of that's going to be worth a shit if you haven't written a story. So if you're trying to write your own 100% homebrew, full original story, as you know, a lot of us really enjoy doing, how do you do that? What are the basic you know structures of, of writing a story? We're both English majors, so I'm sure... <laughs> Not only have we created campaigns, but we've I've written stories. I'm sure you've probably oh, written yeah. stories, maybe comics, things of that nature. How do you you know how do you start writing your story? What is the structure you generally like to follow? Um, so one of my favorite authors is Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut has this. Um, you can actually go see it. He he did like a Harvard presentation. I think it's Harvard, wherein he talks about stories having structures, having shapes to them. And um, he's got, like, there's, like, six different types of stories. There's a hero's journey. There's um, there's a bunch of them I'm not thinking of right now because I didn't study enough. But every story has, like, this, think of it as a roller coaster. There's these ups and these downs and mm-hmm. these ebbs and these flows. You need to be aware of that. Um, think of, like, Cinderella is a good example of, like, okay, so she's got her life. She's kind of kind of sad at the beginning of the story. And she's not really, things are not going great for Cinderella. But she's it could be worse. So we'll, we'll say she's at a zero on the happiness scale, okay? Well, she meets the fairy godmother. Something changes and like causes her life to go off of that path. There's usually a trigger of some sort. And in this specific instance, it made her go up. She's happy. Things are exciting. She's There's this magic in the world. Um, she goes up to, let's say, five. Okay, She's at five on the happiness scale. Now she goes to the ball. Things are beautiful. She feels out of place, but it's exciting and fun. She's at a nine. It's great. It's awesome. And then the bell tolls. And... She feels like a sham. Her slipper breaks. She's trying to run away so the prince doesn't see that she's actually just some commoner, less than a commoner, and she's scared and sad, and she runs home, and it's, I had this great thing. I've lost it. Now she's at a negative five. Oh my gosh, life is so hard for you, Cinderella. She finds a way to overcome that event, and then she ends up with the prince, and now she's at ten, and now right. she's happy again. So they had this up and down motion to it. Roller coasters. Roller coasters are fun. Trains are boring. When you write a story, try and keep that in mind. That there's got to be plot twists. There's got to be something where you you can go, it looked like it was so good, and then it was really bad. I had a plot I wrote one time wherein we, like, saved a little boy who was, like, running away from a kingdom, and he showed us how to get into the kingdom and kill the main uh, king who was a bad guy. And the the second we killed the king, the little boy, like, activates something, and it's like, oh, we found out that he was the prince, and he was actually trying to get you to kill his dad so he could be in charge, and he's worse. Like, you think you just did it. Things are so great. No, it's much worse than you thought it was. That's fun stuff to do. Give them something that looks good and turns out to be bad or looks bad and turns out to be good. You know, that big monster that actually is a lovable giant and wants to help you out. You know, that's that's cool. Messing with expectations is a lot of fun. So when it comes to... Disney movies, which are almost always pretty good, they still have this kind of a bit of a flatness to them. They're not always super in depth, like a lot, especially when it comes to like a Disney princess. They always go through what I like to call the Disney trance, and that's where there's a problem. They start singing a song, and by the time they're done singing the song, they've somehow accomplished <laughs> whatever goal it is. Montage, like whatever, whatever that issue was that they couldn't get past, they get past it. Like in the movie Moana, 
she's afraid to go into the water. She can't, whatever. She starts singing. When the song's over, she's made it beyond uh, beyond the waves, wherever she was trying to go. When it's coming to something like like if you're writing a book or writing a campaign for D&D, you need to have a little bit more complexity than is in a kid's movie. Yeah. So what I do is I like to I like to segment it into different parts, like a beginning, a rising action, a middle, a climax, a falling action, and then an end. I'll, I like to start a campaign, and it seems mundane. They're just in a town. They're going about their daily life. Well, I ask them what their job is, what they're doing, why they're here. You know, maybe you can make me do the classic start in a bar. And it's just mm. a little bar fight. At first, it just seems super common. And then something happens that throws the story into action. And before they realize that they're part of this greater plot where, you know, yesterday they were just a farmer or they were just some people that met in a bar or they're just some travelers. And all of a sudden they're trying to stop some crazy evil from rising or something more personal, save their family or save their village. Something happens between level one and level three that goes from mundane to epic. Well, I liked what you talked about there, which was to say, like, write your bullet points. Here's the beginning, here's the rising action, here's the falling action, all that stuff. If you can get your, like, you know, one, two, three, four, and five done, then if you know the ending, it's a lot easier to build to that. Lots, some people try and write, like, in a straight line, which is, I write one, okay, and then what? I guess what happens out here, and they try and fill in all the details as they go, um, and then they got to two, and so on and so forth. But if then you, you can, get Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't, yeah. Um, but the, what's, what's nice is you can look like you have a really complex plot if you just know the ending. If you know the ending of the plot, then you can go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to put this over at two that might seem kind of unimportant now, but when you get to five, it's going to look, oh, my gosh, he was thinking about it the whole time. You know, one of my favorite shows uh, that does this really well is um, Full Metal Alchemist. Best anime out there, probably, in my opinion. It's I very mean, good, for sure. It's really good. It's up there. Um, they do stuff in episode one that is really important that comes back like, you know, 20 episodes later. They knew where they were going the entire time. And that could be them, like, leaving breadcrumbs that they just go, okay, I don't really know what I'm going to do with this, but at some point I'm going to pull it back later. Or more likely, they knew all of it, and then they just said, okay, cool, I wrote the end, I know where I want to go with this, so I'm going to make this happen and this happen and this happen and start writing backwards. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, do a first draft. Write the first draft and then go, okay, I know where my end is, huh, what else can I add? And then, like, add little chunks. Oh, that character, he walked He walked by that shop. That shop had that really important guy there. And just say it and just put it in there, and then they don't have to... Now, you can run risks of, like, having people learn stuff earlier than they should, but you're the DM. You can just shut down doors if you need to. But it's a good It's a good trick to making things feel really big and important. Mm-hmm. It's just, just have the end in mind. So often you'll design these crazy plot points, and then you find as you're going through your game, you're deviating more and more from them. Or you plan out all this stuff, and then you realize, wow, we only had two battles and went through two rooms. And you don't have to plan every detail. It's it's a week by Most people play once a week, once every other week, something like that. And and the plot develops as you are playing. I think it's it is definitely important to plan these these big plot points. Where do you want them to be at a certain time in the middle? Where do you want the campaign to end up at? Yeah, but kind of limit that to four, five main points and let them make the decisions to get to those main points. You can still accomplish these, this complex story and get them to these places in the plot that you want them to be, but you're not controlling every aspect. If they wanted to sleep in the woods instead of sleep in the town, that's fine cares, as long yeah. as they can still get that hook somehow to go on that mission you wanted them to go on. Or they can still go to this 
flying citadel in the sky, maybe you plan on them infiltrating it before it took off, but now they actually like bought or stole some griffins or something, and they're flying to it while it's already departed. Just allow room for your players to change the campaign. And and the whole thing is, you don't want to railroad players, but as a DM, spoiler alert, you kind of are railroading them in a way. The trick is, don't let them know you're railroading them. Yes, absolutely. Invisible walls, man. There's something that I think a lot of DMs get like sort of nervous about, is when you start to go off my path, and they, oh no, I'm, I'm losing control over my games, anything you know, that's going to fall apart in front of me, let them go. Let them exhaust themselves on their thing. We had a, so I had a game one time where I like we were trying to sneak into a big castle and stuff, and we went through this dungeon. And this dungeon had uh, uh you know I'm not going to go into all the minutia of it, but they got in there. They broke my whole mechanic that I made, but they got in there and they ran up to these guards. There was like one of them tried to attack him. One of them was sleeping, and there was another guy. They killed two of them, and the sleeping one they like woke him up, and they're like, "Why are you here?" They start talking to this guard, a guy who I thought they were just gonna kill. I didn't give him a name. Right. I didn't anything, and they start talking to him, and I was like, "Uh, he's here because it's his job." Oh, well, why is it your job? He's a bad guy that you're working for. I was like, "Uh, he's a, he. My wife is sick. Oh, what, your wife's sick. We your should help her out." Melvin Smith. <laughs> exactly. So, and we got into this whole thing of like that whole game turned into let's find a way to make it so that the bad guy doesn't know that this guy has left because we don't want him to kill him because we like him and he's got a sick wife let's go find a sick wife let's get her to safety let's give them enough money so that she can get all the medicine that she needs this whole big crazy thing that is not what i had planned at all and they did that and i let them go off the path of my story and then once they were done they came back and we went back to my story all this stuff is adapting on the fly as a dm and letting them they you know they get to pick the tone of things like i i've thought about this before about dms kind of shoehorning and making a game feel the way that they want it to feel that's cool and that's great but if your players are like functionally like rick and morty characters and you're trying to write a game of thrones thing it's if you put rick and morty in game of thrones it's not going to feel like game of thrones anymore like let them do what they want to do just kind of bump them in directions that they need and again if they go down a path that seems kind of harmless let them do it let Mm -hmm. them do it let them sleep in the woods let them go save that person's wife and then once they're done with that they'll come back and go okay now we need to get to that guy cool awesome great then you know don't don't throw your hands up in the air if they go off of your path um but have some idea of where they could go i would literally like write i would like make a diagram that was like here's my dot of where i want them to get and it goes to this dot and here's the four paths you can get there and this little like you know plinko board of things that would lead eventually to my end conclusion and right change you know you've got weeks in between these games you can have an idea of where you want to go and if they do something that shifts it go okay well my game's different evolve well a lot of my players seem to think that they're deadpool or something where they say they're good but then they're (laughs) going around murdering people or they're trying to be in character yet they keep talking to me in some metagame voice or like we were saying earlier what do you mean my 12 missed the kobold they're thinking a kobold's ac is only 12 and i'm like well not this kobold you know They don't know everything. And that's actually another point of if you're talking about building a compelling campaign, um, I like to withhold information. Like some of the – like think of Westworld as the example I'm kind of hung up on right now. So Westworld – you watched the first season. I haven't watched any season two. Um, So season one is a good story. It's interesting. It's compelling. But a lot of the reason it's compelling is because they hold so much away from you. They don't tell you everything that's going on in that show. Yeah, and they actually do weird time stuff, and they, they. But like, if you took all the events of season one of Westworld and put them in actual order, 
it wouldn't be as good of a show. Why it's fun and interesting is because you're like, I don't know who that guy is. Why is that person here? Now, the guy who wrote it knew the entire time, but you don't have to show that to your players. Of course. You can go like, hey, that's a mysterious figure. He does this thing. He showed up. Like, you go down to the town and you guys are arrested and you don't know why and they don't tell you why. And then now you get down to here or just you can have things happen. So obviously, don't make it feel like a slap in the face. Don't make them feel like they didn't have the ability to figure things out. That's something that's really important to me when writing stuff is I want it to feel like if you paid perfect attention, if you really, really watched, you could have been Sherlock and added all this stuff together. But more than likely, some stuff isn't going to make sense and you're going to be curious. Right. Withholding information is a good way to make your players feel like there's more to this world that they don't know and they need to find out. Yeah, I think leaving these breadcrumbs for them to follow or even breadcrumbs that they noticed but they missed. They didn't know they were breadcrumbs. Yeah. Three weeks later, they're like, that's what that orb was or it's that voice we heard. (laughs) One of my favorite shows is Doctor Who. So many times in that show, something will happen where... Like, he literally calls himself from a different time period and says something, and you realize you've already saw this other half of the conversation in an episode from two seasons ago, yeah. and these directors plan this shit I for love that years so at a time. Yeah, Those types of things in a D&D game are equally as awesome, if not more cool. Because when you're playing, you're like, there's no fucking way. What do you mean? Or, or they missed out on something. You mean if I went left instead of right, this would have happened? Uh-huh. Or... Those are the moments that are going to wow your players and then as a DM make you feel like, I'm a fucking badass. I just pulled this off. Yeah. Wait a minute. You mean that rock was the crystal of Karthanak the entire time? You know, like, see, one thing that really gets under my skin when I, like, watch a TV show or something is these deus ex machina characters that show up. Like, I don't like reading Iron Man comic books because Iron Man will go through the entire plot and then it'll look like he's in a lot of trouble and he'll go, I have the perfect piece of technology to solve this problem. It comes out of fucking nowhere and he didn't earn it and it just sort of happens sometimes. That's at least bad comic book writing that happens from time to time. Right. Um, If you want to take that exact same thing and make it a good story, make it so at the beginning of the thing, uh, the beginning of the series, he's like fiddling with something with that technology and he goes, oh, I just can't get it right. Oh, it's, it's mm-hmm. uh, th- this quantum such and such is really giving me trouble. And then at the end when he pulls that out of his butt, you're like, oh, that makes sense. He's He had it the whole time. Is yeah, you leave them breadcrumbs, but then you also re- you also leave them red herrings. So when they've <laughs> caught on to you and they're like used to finding breadcrumbs, now you leave them some breadcrumbs that don't lead anywhere. They are obsessing about this object they find, and you're just kind of going with it because for some reason he spent so much time deciding to investigate the rug. Maybe you didn't have a trap plan there. Maybe you didn't have anything under it, and it was just a rug. But because they spent twenty minutes of your game night exploring it, maybe all of a sudden it's a flying carpet. Maybe all of a sudden, underneath is a trapdoor. There's something exceptional about this mundane rug. Just because your players put so much effort into exploring it. Yeah, reward them, for sure. If they walk down a hallway, or they check every corner of something, and like, yeah, if, if they're taking the effort and the time to do that, put something there. For a couple of reasons. One, it makes it an interesting evening. You don't want to just say, there's nothing there, there's nothing there, there's nothing there. Um, and the other reason is it makes them happy, you know? Like, that's fun and, and reward uh, effort in any direction. But punish lack of effort. If people are, like, not paying attention to stuff they should be paying attention mm-hmm. to, hey, man, I'm going to slap you on the wrist. Um, 
uh, or if they get like lazy with it. Oh, I always check the rugs. I always check the rugs. Well, hey, this guy, you're walking around and this guy hates rugs and now he's going to beat you up because you're you're the rug (laughs) guy or something. I don't know. But you can... You can try and break habits and mold habits. You're conditioning your players. Yes. Reward what you like, punish what you don't, within reason. You know, don't cut off hands because you didn't like that they, you know, didn't look at look for tra- traps in the first two rooms. Come on, you know. Yeah, I'll punish players, and I'm not punishing them for the sake of punishing them. I'm punishing them for the sake of educating them. And that's because, at least recently, I've been dealing with new players, people who have never played D&D before. So they walk in the room, and they're all talking and yelling at each other. You need to let them know that when you're yelling inside of a dungeon, other people can hear them. If their friend's 100 feet away and he can hear you yelling, so can the goblins or whatever that's down the hall that are 100 feet away. You're, you're like conditioning them to understand how the game works. And that's with new players. But even with uh, veteran players, yeah, if they're checking every rug and you, you want to make them find something. But if they're checking every rug, they, they lift one up and now there's nothing there. Always keep them guessing. Always yeah. keep them on their toes. Um, That's funny. There's like... This is something that I've done in Street Dragons. I have I call it the rule of Street Dragons, um, and I think it's kind of helpful for um, for for D and D as well. Which is, I want my characters to be my NPCs and things. Four out of five times they need to function the same way, and the fifth time they do something that's out of character because you're never comfortable, you're never safe. If they walk up to a situation, you go, "Oh, well, you know, that's our friend Shopkeep. He always is such and such and such and such." And then he turns a corner and he's like, "Oh, he's mean to us today. Why is he mean to us today?" It's like, well, people aren't always the same. People change right. and they grow and they makes them more realistic. Exactly. Like you don't know what his day is about. Talk to him. And now you're talking to the shopkeeper. Oh, it turns out that, you know, they're putting tariffs on him and he's got to pay more money and there's your plot hook and you want to get him back to normal. That's your buddy Ted the shopkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um uh I I think it's really important to make sure that you're always putting like you know, character growth requires struggle. Do something that's going to like challenge them, that's going to make them feel uneasy and I, I Again, just we've talked about it earlier on the episode, but you don't want to just hand them the same stuff every time. You don't want them to feel like they have the formula. Um, they need to walk into a room and be afraid a little bit. You know, scare them if they, if you need to. Well, definitely. When it comes to like dealing with you know struggle and trying to make your players struggle a little bit, to me, that's one of those kind of storytelling tricks that you learn not only as a writer but as a DM. You learn to set up these situations that are going to move the story forward and keep surprising your players. And there's a lot of different storytelling tricks. Like for you, when you're uh, writing a campaign or you're writing a story, or you're just telling a story. What are like some tricks you like to, you know, pull out of your bag to make it a really fun experience? Well, okay. There's a lot of, there's the classics, the classics, hurting them, hurt your players. It's, I don't ever feel good doing it, but like you said earlier, you know, you Oh, you got great. a family backstory. Uh, they might be dead now. You know, like I'm going to, it's, People get captivated when you can take something they love, hold it in front of them, and then slowly crush it. And they go, no, that's the thing I love. Um, It's why Spider-Man's so interesting, you know? It's uh, like characters are more invested when there's something hanging in the balance. That's like metaphorically, that's one thing I don't like about Batman. So Batman, he kind of gave up on loving things. He lost his family, and then he sort of threw his hands up in the air and says, I'm never really going to love anymore. And you can say he loves like Robin and things like that or Catwoman, but you know what I'm saying. Like nothing... It feels like he's betting less because he doesn't have anything he cares about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
your characters should be well developed. They should have things that they care about. Spider Man, every time he goes out there, like he gotta he's gotta keep that mask on because if he takes it off, Mary Jane's in trouble. You know, uh, Aunt May's in trouble. You know, depending on your timelines, Gwen Stacy's in t- in trouble. Um, Batman, if he takes off the mask, like what? Alfred's in trouble. Right. You know, come on. Um, so you have something to hurt them with, and that's something you need to ask of your players too. They need to have things that are capable of hurting them. Definitely. Um, uh, like, I always think of, uh, so Dragon Ball Z, like, you watch the, the Namek arc, and you've got Goku, and he's he's tr- gonna be Super Saiyan at some point in time, but he hasn't done it yet, and Frieza kills Krillin. Yeah. There we go. Now he's motivated, now he goes next level, and he goes Super Saiyan. Spoiler if you- alert, Krillin dies. <laughs> you have long overdue if you're just not watching Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> it's like, literally been, like, 200 episodes, 300 episodes since then. God, I love that show. Um... We should talk about Super at some point. I like Super. Anyways, <laughs> um, like that wouldn't feel the same if Krillin didn't die. Like, imagine how hollow that would feel if he just like, oh no, he punched Krillin and Krillin fell over. That's it. You don't punch my friends. I'm Super Saiyan. Now he'd be like, okay, well, they already punched your friends like 40 times. You know, right. like it's because there was a, a cost there that like pushed him over an edge. That's how you can get a lot of character growth. Like that's where we find our limits is when you've got something that's kind of hard, kind of dangerous. And can you push beyond that? Yeah. Like Ask kill your... Yamcha as many times as you want, but don't fuck with Krillin. <laughs> no, don't. We've seen him from the beginning in Dragon Ball. Um, I also like to do cutscenes. Like just, if we're talking about ways to tell your story, um, Sometimes your players can asshat too much, they can be running around, they can be doing stuff, and you don't really feel like they're getting the severity of a moment. Like, don't be afraid to stop it and go, here, this is narration of what happens. I don't like to do it where the characters could potentially act, you know? I like to do my cutscenes either off-screen, like for this villain campaign. Something that I've been kind of playing with is this idea of, like, we walk, I start my, my story with a cutscene of something that's happening somewhere and you don't know what's going on. But here's this cutscene that's building some drama, and then you go to your life and what's happening to you. But your characters, your players, go like, "Wait a minute, what is that?" Right. Ah, okay. Um, or you could say this cutscene is your main villain giving a big speech and really selling stuff, and your characters can't act because they were frozen by a spell, or maybe they're like in a crowd with a bunch of people and socially they're in, they're incapable of like cutting him down at this moment the way they normally would interrupt that kind of speech. You can do a cutscene a lot of different ways, and it's a great, great tool for like telling everything at the pace that you want to tell it. Yeah, I think a cutscene is a, a really good way to control the pace of your game. You want your players to have control over it most of the time, but there are times when you want to take the reins back. You want to steer them back in the right direction, or they're moving too slow. Mm-hmm. You want to speed it up a little. They're moving too fast. You want to slow them down a little. Or it's a good way to create conclusions. Something happened. Now you can create this grandiose result this grandest consequence and you you explain it this happens this giant cloud comes you know the shadow across the ground you see this enormous thundercloud above you there's this enormous castle floating in the sky it seems to be made out of clouds like things especially if it's things they can't control and they're these big epic occurrences using a cutscene type narration is a really good way to do that you brought up space which is a really good point i there's you get to talk all you want. You're the DM. Everything is in your hands. If you want something to feel important to the players, keep talking about it. You know, tell them more about it. They'll eventually catch on that that thing was important. If you want them to glaze past it, but make sure you say it, just say it for a second. Um, you also 
like one of I I remember one thing that happened in in our games that I really that struck out to me about pacing was we had this big big war that was going down and we took the time when I was DMing to like the day before the war we had a whole game that was just us at camp that night before the war and there was something really like daunting about it made the war that was upcoming feel even more important because we didn't just go like we gathered all of our stuff let's go we like stopped and was like here it comes people are gonna die like there's friends that are with you that probably are not going to get out of here and we made people talk to each other and tell stories to each other and like you cook the food and this person's like this person seems sad and they're saying goodbye to people and you need to say goodbye to people and ah like the moment before the war was just as scary as the war itself and mm-hmm. i i like that like if something big happens stop your characters and say hey how does that make you feel like, how are you processing that? Or if you know enough about their characters, be like, well, wouldn't that bug you? Because this happened to you in your past? Like, tell me about that. And do you say anything to anybody? And, you know, a good player will go like, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know. I look dejected. Or another player that's a good player will be like, oh, I see that he's sad. And you'll let them kind of sink into these moments. Um, and if they're, like, doing that too much, be like, smoke grenades come through the window. And then, like, you go, 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 go. And you got to, like, fucking run and, and deal with it because we're trying to get the pace a different way. You know, you get to pick. If you want fast, make it fast. If you want slow, stop things. Definitely. Well, Alex, I think that we have given our listeners an extensive amount of information to consider and just some ideas that they can, you know, bring to their own game when they're coming to design a campaign. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners before we go? Man, um, I just like a couple quick little thoughts. I kind of jotted down some notes when I was walking into this. Um, these I don't know if these fall in the categories what we're looking for, but like the world is moving at all times. Um, your characters can do things, and they can they are the main characters. So we're trying to make them the main characters. But they don't have to see everything that happens. Um, they stuff happens behind the scenes. People have a tendency to kind of feel cheated if they didn't see something coming. It's like, well, you don't know. Everybody that's in the world. Um, I like to use that as a tool. Um, you were talking, you brought up earlier about like low level versus high level campaigns. Like low level campaigns, just a good note is you might have to bottleneck your characters more to get them united. High level campaigns, make sure you're trying to showcase to them that they are movers and shakers. And you can do that. I think one of the best ways to do that, specifically when it comes to fights, is like give them small things at high numbers. Um, like, I, you ever play a video game and you like fight a skeleton in level one and he's like kind of challenging to you and you come back later and you're level like a hundred and you're just like just turning them all to dust 13 at a time like that's a cool moment and it makes you feel big and it makes you feel important in high level campaigns like dynasty warrior now yeah i love that just sweeping through waves that feels cool and it makes you feel powerful you don't have to just say you fought a dragon like i think honestly when you fight one big heavy monster that makes that does not make me feel strong at high levels because it's taking five of us to take down this challenge yeah no, I'm level 20. Like, I should be able to goof up anybody. So give me, like, a whole bunch of guys who are level 5, and I'll just demolish them and mm-hmm. feel like I'm the baddest dude in the room. Well, armies, throwing an army at someone is also a really good way, especially at a high level, to really give your campaign an epic feel. If you're going to, you know, you're marching into the Citadel or whatever to take down the big bad, and there's an army of lower-level minions you have to, like, go through first, that's really going to give this feel. If he really is that big of a badass, he would have an army. It, yeah. it would make less sense to have three or four guys guarding this castle. If 
fuck no. Like, if it's it's Saruman, (laughs) he's going to have an army of orcs that you got to mow through before you can climb the tower to fight Saruman. Yeah, I people have a tendency to write campaigns where it's like, okay, there's Lex Luthor, he's in the building, and you got to go take him out. It's like Lex Luthor has a whole security system; he's got everything. You might get to him, and it's not him. Like you, the big movers and shakers have a lot of capacity, and when you take them out, if it is going to be one big monster that is the big dangerous thing, that needs to feel really hard and really heavy. Um, but the run up to that, I should feel like I'm killing everybody, you know? I should be scared of the numbers, not the individuals, you know? Right. Um, if we're trying to make it feel epic. High-level campaigns are hard, man. High-level campaigns are real hard. I think that the one thing I would like to leave our listeners with is if you're designing a campaign, or if you're playing in it, if you're designing a campaign, create it in such a way that it does have this epic feel to it, but allow some room for your players to make decisions steer the campaign one way or the other, and make mistakes. Make sure that your players feel like they are contributing to the story. And most of all, allow them to make big changes in your world. If they demolish a political structure, create aftermath. Allow them to see the results and consequences of their actions. Really let them, let them like you are saying, make them feel like superheroes. Make them feel like the badasses they are. Let them know, like, I did this thing, and I shaped the world because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't say it better. All right. Well, that is all we have today for building a compelling campaign. Normally, we would get onto the deep dive, but we found out that we have just so much to say that we're going to put aside an entire episode just to discuss that. So make sure you tune in next week for Dice Talk. As always, I just want to take some time to thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that our discussions were able to both entertain and inspire you. Do you have interesting ways that you like to build your campaigns? How do you normally go about writing stories when you're planning for a game? We would love to hear about it. You can send us comments, questions, or just say hi by going to DiceTalkShow.com. There you can engage on our blog with the Dice Talk community, explore our image gallery, and stay up to date with all things Dice Talk. If you want to find us on social media, you can do so by searching Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just type in Dice Talk and start following us today. You can also get in touch with us by sending us an email to dicetalkshow at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. They really help to get us to the top of the charts so that Dice Talk can reach even more listeners. We will continue to read out five-star reviews in future episodes, so rate and review us, tell us what you think, and listen for your shout-out. Until then, tell your friends about us and subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening to Dice Talk and be sure to tune in next week for episode 5.